I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 35 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is co-founder and co-leader of the band Devo, Gerald Casale. We spoke the morning after Devo played a show in New York City, but as you'll hear, he wasn't feeling particularly cheerful about the state of the world or his ongoing collaboration with fellow leader and frontman Mark Mothersbaugh. He wasn't too happy about the band's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame snub either. A lot of us know the story of Devo, how the name is short for the band's theory of de-evolution, and how their perspective was informed by the National Guard student shootings at Kent State University in 1970. Casali was friends with two of the four students killed there. We know that the group's core was two sets of brothers, Mark and Bob Mothersbaugh and Gerald and Bob Casale, who played with powerhouse drummer Alan Myers. And we picture the yellow jumpsuits the band wore while performing its first album, Q, Are We Not Men? A, We Are Devo. We also associate them with the red energy domes atop their heads on Whip It and the rest of the Freedom of Choice album. What doesn't get discussed so much is the music itself. How did Gerald Casale and Mark Mothersbaugh write their songs? Who did what? How did they decide who sang what? How did that collaboration change over the years? When they recorded the songs, did they already have the visual presentations in mind? Who was in charge of that? Would the bandmates wear their jumpsuits and energy domes into the studio? What roles did Bob Mothersbaugh, Gerald's late brother Bob Casale, and the late Alan Myers play in the music's creation? How did Devo transition from a punky guitar-driven band to a synth band? Was that shift a source of tension among the band's leaders? How did Devo get booked on Saturday Night Live so early in its career? And what factor did Neil Young play? What did that experience feel like? What did it mean for the band? And how did they wind up on the show Fridays after that? How was Devo's experience working with producer Brian Eno on Are We Not Men? How did the collaboration with producer Ken Scott on Duty Now for the Future happen? And why is Casale still so unhappy about it? Did the band think Whip It would be a hit? Or were they just as enthused about, say, Grill You Want or Freedom of Choice? What happened to degrade the sound of their fourth album, New Traditionalists? What's the story behind Beautiful World, perhaps the most beloved and barbed Devo song that Casale sings? It's a beautiful world. Casale had to break off the conversation, but we picked it up later that day, and you'll hear part two next week. It gets dark. Right now, you can get some satisfaction from part one of the Carol Pop conversation with Gerald Casale. I feel like a lot of discussion of Devo um, is because you guys were so distinct in your presentation and visuals and sort of concepts that a lot of times people sort of forget how really strong the music itself was. That if you listen to these albums and, you know, you guys were just five guys in jeans, they would still be these outstanding (laughs) records. Maybe we would have uh, been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame then. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's funny that so this this piece I did with you, I think it was 2009. I talked to you about it then. I was like, and 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 I'm and I have this mixed feeling about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I I would not be surprised if you share. Which is that I think that the concept, the concept is kind of of a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is kind of stupid. Like the bands that I love, I love, and it has no, like validation is never relevant to 
music that I love. Right. On the other hand, you're just like, how are they not in there? This is stupid. You know, of course, Devo should be in there. Well, yeah, if if they were true to their stated purpose and rewarding people who pushed the the realm of pop music in a new direction or innovated and has a lasting influence. Yeah, then we'd be in. But clearly they're, a, you know, a, a very abstract uh, uh, political body that, that operates inscrutably in their own ways. And, 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 and obviously what they're rewarding isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with their stated uh, manifesto. Well, and even that seems to be shifting because like Bon Jovi in the early years wouldn't have come within spitting distance of it. And then it was like, oh, Bon Jovi. And you know, now it's like Pat Benatar. And I'm, and I'm not trying to be down on Pat Benatar. I mean, there aren't enough women in there anyway, but I don't really, you know, I don't think of, oh, you know, like, let's put on that great Pat Benatar record. <laughs> she didn't do anything about changing the course of rock music. I mean, she did, again, she was a great artist in the MTV era. And, and the, the problem with this is that it sort of, uh, it, it kind of makes us sort of like downgrade other people. I mean, I remember in my, in my, I looked back at my notes for when I talked to you way back when, and I was like, Mellencamp's in there or not you? You know, now Mellencamp is considered, you know, like legendary guy compared to a lot of the people who were, who were there. So, you know, he's fine, but yeah, Devo obviously should be there. So you get to the first album and obviously you guys have been playing together for a long time and, you know, you know, people know your backstory. Um, but tell me about like just the actual recording of that record. I mean, I think that people, they have such an image of you guys as a synth record and, and, you know, the first album is such a strong guitar album. And it's just like this really tight guitar rocket record. Like, tell me about just how you guys wrote the songs and, you know, got together and recorded them. Obviously, you know, produced, but like, what was the process on that like? Oh, it's a process that we should have uh, stuck with, actually, <laughs> because we used to uh, collaborate openly, daily, you know, hours on end and share our notebooks, our sketchbooks, our ideas, and they would lead to the strongest songs. And then we would, as a group, develop the songs, play together until we had some something very specific we liked, and practice them. So by the time we got in the studio, we were recording pretty much live, where people were in separated, you know, by sound baffles, not total booths or rooms. You're in one live room, but you're you're, you're getting direct lines as well as amplifier lines, and you're playing all the rhythm tracks at once together. Uh, so that that's what you're hearing. You're hearing the immediacy of real musicians playing together that were tight. Right. Machine, but there was no click track. We didn't use click tracks. Alan Myers was a human click track. And he was a, a beast on the drums too. I mean, those are such strong rhythm tracks on there. I mean, it's like you could, you, you, you could set a machine to that, but you wouldn't get that kind of feel that he added to the power of what he was doing. You know, Devo was better when they sounded like they were using machines, but they weren't. Then when it really was machines, the soul was gone. 
Yeah. So, so, so tell me about, so it would start off with the song. Were you, were you like writing lyrics and then coming up with the music? Were you and Mark sort of coming up with the lyrics and the music together? Like how did yeah, that in the work? Beginning, we, in the beginning, we contributed pretty evenly on both lyrics and music. And then as it got more into machine music, it was just like he was, you know, so enamored to programs and, you know, the the latest programmable synths and finally like the Fairlight. And uh, that, that, that he kind of, you know, was so prolific at it that there wasn't going to be a song unless it was basically started with his music, even if I added changes even if i changed the arrangement and added chords it didn't matter and i was more relegated to writing all the lyrics <laughs> and at what point did that shift happen somewhere around um probably oh no it's devo right so you're so that's five albums in at that point yeah um but so the first ones, my impression is that the first two albums, uh, Duty Now for the Future being the second one, for those of you who don't know that, and of course should, um, that, that, that those first two albums were mostly material that you guys had worked up over the past several years. And that was, you know, because you just had a backlog of stuff. And right. so something like Clock Out, which you sing is like the first song with vocals on Duty Now, I had been kicking around for a bit, right? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we had been laboring intensively in basements and garages, completely, um, you know, unknown, completely invisible in Akron, Ohio, in Kent, Ohio. And uh, when we finally made it up onto the radar, we had like 40 songs over a like three year period and we had been practicing them. So, yes, we divided up album one and two on purpose the way we did starting with our backlog of songs so did you already have like what was going to be on the second album when you put the first album together were you like okay this is one and two and we already know what they are yeah and we wanted to get that out of our system because we were already you know we were an experimental art collective basically and we already knew where we were going so the sound you heard on freedom of choice is where we were already migrating to and talking about and we wanted to get what we'd been doing onto vinyl and move on. So when the first album was produced by Brian, you know, uh, the second one was Ken Scott, who I knew from super tramp because I was into them when I was you know younger. And I know that he, he'd worked with Bowie as well. Right. Um, as as had brian eno um, what was your sort of experience like the contrast between those two producers well it was pretty much night and day and ken scott was a mistake ken scott just was that was not a good fit with devo and he basically took very powerful you know cutting edge kind of rock bass devo material and he 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 stripped it. I mean, he basically neutered it. You know, he castrated the Devo power. In what way? Like, 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 did you, was techniques, he his, his kind of analytical, unenthusiastic way he went about things and the way he tried to like marginalize us and, 
you know, put us in a corner and do everything himself. So how did you end up working with him in the first place? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> we were, uh, I think we were sold a bill of goods by some one at Warner's who was really afraid of us producing ourselves. And, uh, you know, Warner's didn't give Devo a lot of money or anything. And so out of the producers that were willing to work for three points and a reasonable rate for the record, he was the one being pushed the most in our faces. And it had something to do with the fact that they knew we were, you know, Bowie acolytes. Ken had worked with David Bowie. So there, there was, you know, there's the selling point. Was there any thought of going back with uh, Eno on that? No, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a possibility even. Eno was moved on and he was busy and we weren't going to go back to Europe to record. We were going to stay in LA because of all the things we had to do and because of Warner Brothers being there. And uh, it just wasn't going to work out. David Bowie was supposed to produce it. And he kept putting it off and putting it off because he was so busy with so many projects. And he was doing that movie Gigolo. And that put another two months on it. And we said, listen, we can't wait any longer. We feel like we need to get this out now. You know, it was like the Talking Heads had released. Blondie had released. Uh, uh, B-52s were coming out. It just felt like we were going to look like guys chasing the zeitgeist when we had started it. So he goes, okay, I understand. Here, I'll fly to New York. You meet with uh, Brian. Brian's keen on doing this. And, um, you know, they had both just done that three album cycle that ended with uh, um, the great record. Yeah, yeah. And, and we thought, that's great. And we met Brian and Mark and I loved him and he was fun to be with and really smart. So there was just, it just felt good. And it was, it was the right thing to do because they hook us up with Connie Plank, who's famous for his kraut rock. And it was the perfect marriage of people that are into experimenting in the studio and using cutting edge engineering techniques and new sounds. And, uh, you know, the, the enthusiasm and the technical skill was a good match. Did he bring out things in the songs that you, that surprised you? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes he did. Uh, especially on things like where you wouldn't expect it, like uh, Mongoloid. Uh, the sound of that song had everything to do with Eno and um, Shrivel Up. Absolutely mm. created that sequencer line um, that, that we played to. That was the only song on the record we, where we played to a click. On Satisfaction, was he the one who had who came up with the loop of baby, 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 no. baby, baby? No, Mark had, we had worked that out. Mark had been doing that live. And so we just, what we did is we said, let's, let's exaggerate it. Let's make it too much on purpose. You and I spoke right before you guys played uh, all of uh, Q, Are We Not Men and uh, Freedom of Choice at the Vic yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and you were working on the new album at the time. Um, and 
I've gotten the I got the Jihad Jerry uh, album at Record Store Day, which I really enjoy, and it's kind of a Devo record, but all you songs. Um, and it's uh, the impression that I'm getting from a lot of the stuff that I've read is that you're kind of the guy who really wants to sort of keep Devo going and active, and sometimes it's uh, you know you have to sort of tug a little harder to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm I single handedly keep the spirit of Devo alive. That's right. How is that? And how do you do that? Uh, yeah, it great uh, uh, um, stress to my own body and mind. <laughs> but why is it? Why does it take such an effort? I don't know. I really don't. I'm I'm the same guy that started the band. I'm I'm the same guy I was then. I see the world the same way. I have the same values. I have the same enthusiasm for creating a certain aesthetic that started Devo and it never changed. So I can't speak for, for Mark. I don't know what happened there. But, but you feel like he's not as single, singularly devoted to that. Not at all. As you oh no, he, not at all. He, he just cares about composing. That's it. You got the five of you in the studio doing this. What do you see? So your brother is there, uh, Bob. Uh, there's Bob Mothersbaugh. Uh, there's Alan. How does how did each of them kind of contribute to the arrangements of these songs? Like, what was the role that each person played? Well, your arrangements, uh, that was really in my domain and sometimes Mark's domain. I had most of the arrangement ideas, but the parts that had been worked out by us playing together were obviously the result of the personalities involved. Like, you know, no, no one told Bob Mothersbaugh what to play. You know, no one told Bob Casali what to play. I have a lot of ideas or a lot of suggestions, but what would happen is out of the things they would do, of course, you respond to the one that works that gets you off and you go that do that again do that even more oh let's make that you know more trebly and do it even more so it evolved it was organic and uh the players were so important alan myers you know i would just tell him an idea of beat it with my hands and he'd turn it into a finished pristine track like that I mean, the guy was amazing. How did you guys decide who was going to sing which song? You know, that kind of came about because a lot of the parts that we were playing made it impossible for me to sing live and play the part at the same time. It wasn't, it was too polyrhythmic. And, and so Mark started singing more live than we did on the recordings. And people didn't know who was singing back then, if it was him or me. And so live, he was singing more because all he was playing was synthesizer leads on that early material. He didn't have to constantly play anything. So we worked on his stage presence and he became the front man. Did you want to be singing more originally? Did you envision that? I just was. <laughs> and all I ever cared about was the big idea. I cared about... Not, you know, me, but Devo, the concept. So whatever would best serve the big idea, I was always fine with. 
Right. And you had, so you had two sets of brothers in this band. Did that, did that ever complicate things? Was that a good thing or some sibling rivalry? It, was it wasn't very, like the kinks times two or something. Yeah, no, no, in the beginning it was a very good thing. Well, then once, once things devolve, right. Then you get this, these tribal camps, you know, then it became tribal camps. And I have no explanation for that. Uh, I, I don't live my life that way. And I find it, it's disconcerting and, you know, almost abhorrent. I say, what's the best idea here and what will make the coolest result? And so once it devolves into tribalism, I'm, I'm out. I can't, I can't work in that world and I don't thrive in that world. So did it, was it like the Mother's Bow tribe and the Kasali tribe or was it? Yeah, yeah that's, well, that's what was forced. I, I, I mean, it wasn't my reality. It was a reality yeah. that forced down my throat were the conflicts about sort of the musical direction or just the the band career steps you would take or what was it about you know that's that's a good question i wish i knew the answer it certainly didn't seem to be about you know creative differences that's it, not not the case At what point in the conception of these albums were you sort of thinking about also the presentation and the look and, you know, the outfit and how you were going to perform them on stage? From the beginning. Oftentimes we'd have a video idea of before an actual song. And then some would be driven by the idea that had been the visual idea. So when you're doing like uncontrollable urge, you're, you already know you're going to be wearing the yellow suits and... Yeah. This and that, and then and then you knew sort of what the the costume change was going to be for the second album. Yeah. Would you would you take any of that into the studio? Like when you're recording Freedom of Choice, are you guys wearing the energy domes as you're playing yeah. these songs? Yeah. So you're still going into the studio like as sort of like regular musicians, but there's already the sense of this is how we're going to present it, and this is what the concept of this period slash record is. Pretty much. I mean, it was it was very everything was discussed and consciously conceptually worked out. Yeah. So so tell me, what was the thought process? Like, like let's, let's take those first three records. I mean, you could do this for the first you know, five or really do it for all of them. But um, like each one, you're like, OK, what you know, we're going to present ourselves this way and then this way and then this way. What was the, the thinking behind it and how like. Did you guys all hammer that out together? Did you sort of say, no, this is this is what I want? No, I mean, you know, Mark and I had a really compatible aesthetic. I mean, our aesthetics overlap 90%. So, uh, you know, in the beginning, who, whoever had a great idea, the other person recognized that and you were inspired. It wasn't like, well, wait a minute, that's his idea. So fuck that. You know, it wasn't like that. Right. So uh, it became the Devo idea, you know, it was done in the service of a bigger thing than individuals so that the whole, you know, was bigger than the sum of the parts. And, and um, we were building on previous aesthetics at a certain point, you know, you, you kind of, you're you at that point, you've done you, and now you can't not do you, you're doing some new variation, some different aspect of you and uh, and that's what you were seeing. I mean, suddenly wearing 
you know, full head, rubber hair, based on Reagan and Kennedy's presidential hairdos, that that flows from past Devo stuff. You know, even though it's different, it's still in the same wheelhouse, same aesthetic lane. Right. So that was New Traditionalists, which I think of as also very like that's a blue record and Freedom yeah. of Choice is the red record with the red energy domes. And then, yeah. you know, you have sort of the yellow record, which is the first one. And yeah. I guess New Duty Now is kind of white. Um, so, so each one, so each one of those, you're like, okay, we're going to shift and this is going to be the way we are going to look on that one. Those. Yeah. And, and the music had something to do with it as well. And then my, um, my developing, um, um, repertoire and, and knowledge of staging, you know, from working with lighting designers and, I started getting even more ideas and I was directing all the videos, you know, and, and so that was, that was an area I thrived in. You know, I was always thinking about costume design and staging of the show and lighting effects and uh, theatrical tricks. Uh, That's that excited me. And I, so I was driving most of that. Right. So I remember being, I don't know if junior high or maybe freshman year of high school, I'll have to get the dates right. But, but Saturday night live starts off that I think it was like the third season and the Rolling Stones were the guests the first week. Right. And I knew the Rolling Stones. And then the next week was this band I'd never heard of called Devo. And you guys came out and you did satisfaction and Jocko Homo. I was like, wow. Like that made it, made an impression on me. And I'm sure a lot of people, how big a deal of that, was 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 that for you guys that was probably one of the most important linchpin foundations of our whole career i mean it changed over everything changed overnight saturday night live was a big deal there were three networks back then there was no cable when on saturday night there they had a they had about 15 million people watching everybody saw devo and it blew their minds it scared them either pissed them off or made them so excited. <laughs> it was very polarizing. And suddenly overnight, we were going from playing clubs to like 3,000 seaters because of that appearance. So how did you get it? And then how did you feel before the performance? Were you totally nervous or were you just like, this is where we should be? Probably never been more nervous in my life when they, when people say I shit my pants it's it's almost literal that's what you feel you uh it's involuntary response you know your your gut is going from peristalsis times 10 and uh and it is very scary it's totally live and the audience is right on top of you and they're all staring at you you know and the unseen announcer the god voice you know and now Debo, and you're on boom and uh in the dark, you know, when you're down between commercial break, it's totally dark. And Lauren Michaels comes over with his assistant and they put a flashlight under him. So he looks like, you know, a ghoul, <laughs> right? You know, like a horror movie. And he goes, all right, guys, you know, when you hear whoever the announcer's voice is, when you hear that over the PA system and he says, Devo, I don't care what's wrong up here or what instrument isn't working you play your asses off because 15 million people are going to see you and don't blow it and then 
the light goes off and he walks away. <laughs> and, yeah, that's, that's a way to re- relax you before your performance. Well, we, that, I mean, the adrenaline was so rushing. We played so tight and fast. People yeah. thought it was a special effect. They didn't think it was real. Yeah, my memory was you doing uh, Satisfaction first and then you did Jocko Homo right. as the right. second one. Right. Were you a little more, was it different doing the second song? By then you're like, okay, we've done this. Yeah, because you've gone to the bathroom. um how did so how did you get that booking like did did were you you surprised when you found out you're going to be on there in the week after well i'd been trying to get on there for two years sending packages to dan Aykroyd and and john belushi which i was assured when we finally got our manager elliot roberts i was assured that those probably went right in the wastebasket every time and so when he, uh, when we met Elliot because of uh, Neil Young, because he managed Neil, right, and all these managers were besieging us, and Neil said, "You should talk to to, to, to Elliot." And Elliot goes, "What do you want?" And I said, "Well, all these managers they want twenty percent and they want a piece of our publishing, and I think that's wrong." And he goes, "I don't want your publishing, and I'll do it for fifteen percent." And we'll do handshake. I can get rid of you in 30 days. You can get rid of me in 30 days notice. He goes, anything else? I said, absolutely. I want on Saturday Night Live. (laughs) He goes, all right, you come into my office Monday morning. You and Mark come in and you'll be on Saturday Night Live. I go, what? You know, I thought it was a joke. And he goes, I know Lauren so well. You'll be on Saturday Night Live. So sure enough, he calls Lauren. And what I don't realize is that the call that we get to hear is performance. It's a setup. He's already called Lauren. He's already promised Lauren if he takes Debo, he'll give him Neil Young because Lauren's been after Neil Young for three years since the first show. And Neil's always said no. So he gets a commitment out of Neil to play Saturday Night Live, promises Lauren that if you'll take this new band Devo that Lauren doesn't give a fuck about (laughs) and thinks is really wacko. And that's how he did it. He brokered a deal. How amazing is it to have a manager who's willing to leverage Neil Young to help you guys out? Fantastic. Because he was, you know, Neil and him went way back and Neil trusted him. Well, that's pretty good. I'd, I'd read years ago, there was a story about you and Mark having to play the recording of satisfaction for Mick Jagger in some New York office. Yeah, yeah we did that. Yeah. We were in Peter <laughs> Rudge's office who was the, you know, Darth Vader manager of uh, the Rolling Stones. And he's in a three piece Savile Row suit with a Paisley tie and one of those shirts with white collars and cuffs. And uh, Mick Jagger came in and he's clearly had just gotten out of bed and he was in <laughs> stocking feet and looking kind of tired and Peter Rudge poured him a glass of claret and he had his glass of red wine, he introduced himself with politeness. And then he said, let's hear it then. And uh, we put it in the boom box uh, on the mantle of the fireplace that was going in Peter Rudge's office. It was that kind of a sumptuous office. Yeah. I was going to say, of course, the fireplace in his office, go ahead. And, uh, and Jagger had his head down and swirling a glass of wine. 
for 30 seconds, he didn't do anything. Then he set the glass of wine down, stood up, started dancing around in his stocking feet, sliding <laughs> on the wooden floor, acting like Mick Jagger, saying, I like it, I like it. That must have been like one of the highlights up to that it point, was, if not forever. It was incredible. Getting, getting the, the personal Mick Jagger dance right in front of you to your song, your, your interpretation. Yeah. And then we flew back to L.A. and Elliot threw cold water on the whole thing saying, listen, I told Peter Rudge to tell Mick to really act like he likes it because he's going to get all the publishing money and he's going to make a ton off of you guys. <laughs> well, the fact that he thought you to make, you make a ton off of you guys is a good sign anyway, though, because yeah. that means people are going to hear it and buy it and all of that. Yeah. Um, so, so, so freedom of choice is like that, that pivotal third album. And it sounds like it's the one where you were sort of developing most sort of more than most of the material after you'd already become known as Devo, as opposed to developing your stuff in your little, you know, small rooms you were playing. Yeah. Um, uh, that was all written between 1979 and 1980 in LA. Yeah. And it's really like, just, it's, it's like, just like a great poppy rock record. Like it's just like in terms of just melodies and, and everything else. So what was the process like for that one? Well, it was still, it was still the all for one, one for all, three Musketeers Devo, five Musketeers Devo. Uh, that was, you know, the, that was the result of still open collaboration. Was there was there a thought to sort of make it more melodic, or is that just sort of what was coming out no. at that time? Because it's a very yeah, hooky just, record. Yeah, I know, and no, it was just what we were doing. It's like what we wanted to do. And again, was it mostly you and Mark sort of writing the songs together? Yeah. When you wrote them, did you think, oh, Whip It is the hit? Or did you think, no. Girl, you wants the hit? Or whatever. No, we certainly, you know, we weren't capable of thinking in a um, cynical, commercial way, believe it or not. We, we didn't put a song on a record if we didn't like it. And so we liked whip it because we put it on there, but we didn't like it more than freedom of choice or more than, you know, uh, girls you want or. or gates anyway. of steel. Yeah. Yeah. You guys played, you, you, you played on Fridays then. So you sort of migrated from one live show to the other one. And there are these great, you could watch them on YouTube and I recommend anyone who's listening to this, they should check them out. Um, but you guys play, uh, girl you want and gates of steel and then i think you go and and, and i think that might be from the same week you also do uncontrollable urge but but those are like these powerhouse performances of those uh those two songs uh gates of steel and girl you want those were great times on fridays we were we were on that show three times and each time we got to play three songs and it was a great experience so what was the reason to do fridays instead of snl again uh, Lauren wasn't interested in having us back. Well, you know, we, we, we just, we weren't embraced by that New York elite hip crowd. We just weren't. I mean, that was, they loved David Byrne. You know, they loved Hall and Oates. I'll tell you, it was John Wenner probably that cast a, you know, a curse on Devo because he hated us from the time we did the cover of Satisfaction. He thought we were making fun of the Rolling Stones and they were his gods. He named his paper after them. So he just turned his back on Devo and started 
using his reporters to shit on us. Yeah, that's such an odd reaction to that, because I never, I mean, in all the times I've heard that song, I never thought you were, like, taking the piss out of the Rolling Stones. I just yeah. thought you came up with this really cool, and I mean, and you again, you're embraced by Bowie, like, like I thought the New York people liked that sort of thing. Yeah, I would have thought so, but we were, no, we weren't. We were like the Rodney Dangerfields of, of a new wave, you know, no respect. You know, produced Are We Not Men, and then I think right afterwards did more songs about buildings and food, the Talking Heads right. record. That's right. And, and as someone who really likes both albums, it sort of made sense to me that that's sort of the order and the proximity in which those were done, because they both are these very tightly wound uh, records, you know, yeah. kind of lean and tight yeah. and rhythmic. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're like, you're, you're huge on MTV and you have this big hit that you didn't anticipate with Whip It. What did that do to the band and your creative process? Well, I was happy about it because I thought, <laughs> I thought now, you know, we're at a new level of opportunity. We can, we could get more people to listen to us about our ideas. And maybe now finally get to do the Devo movie. And maybe now we can finally do this, um, you know, this, this video game thing that was starting to happen. And in other words, I was all excited about what opportunities suddenly having commercial success would afford us. And, uh, what I didn't see coming was, again, the hierarchy and the politics or fame going to somebody's head and changing them. So what? who changed in what way? Well, I ain't talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, you and Mark are the key creative forces behind that band. Um, so you went in to do New Traditionalists with your, you know, your, your, your plastic hair and, yeah. and uh, Kennedy Reagan stuff. Yeah. Um, were you as happy with that album as with the previous, at least with Freedom of Choice? No. No, a lot of bad things happened in the recording of that record. And I don't mean even between the band members. I mean, with schedules, with, uh, believe it or not, 3M tape, two-inch, you know, master tape, that started disintegrating huh. after we had most of our tracks recorded and we were doing overdubs and we had wow. depleted our budget. And now the songs, as they existed on mixed, were falling apart. And we had to oh. transfer to, to the new digital format to try to save them, to try to stop the deterioration. And then we had to take that back to the record plant in... Um, Los Angeles and start recording with this new format that we had dumped them onto that was all really unreliable and created new problems. The hideous. I mean, I always, I mean, if you don't mind my saying this, I always felt like that album just kind of didn't have the sort of sonic pop of the previous ones. That's why. It's a little bit sort of mushier feeling. Um, and there's why. some fantastic songs on it, but I always felt like it was a little more kind of buzzy, but not less punchy. It's so that's, you hear the technical problem. And you got, and I remember getting that record and there was a seven inch of working on a coal mine in it, which was released as a single. Was that something that you, you had planned to put on there all along or was that? Sort no, of we did that song morning? for the movie heavy metal. And right. I remember that Warner brothers. Well, we did that because Warner brothers heard the demo tapes and what, what weren't interested at all in that song on being on our record. So we said, well, can we use it for heavy metal? They said, sure. 
then it became um, a kind of a hit. And Warner's right. is like, that has to be on your record, but it was too late. So they stuck a seven inch in there after the fact because they changed 180 degrees their their um, you know assessment of the song. Did that affect at all how they promoted the original songs that were on the album as well, or was that just sort of a little bonus that you also got that seven inch because that yeah, had already that was, been a yeah, hit at that point? They were just grasping at straws because I had gone to them with Elliot Roberts and said, "Listen, we need to re-record these." songs for new traditionalists because here's what happened in new york here's what happened at the record plant they don't sound as good as these songs are we got to re-record it but of course it was like well we're not paying for that and of course we didn't have the money to start over with the recording budget right so they wouldn't they wouldn't pay up to let us re-record them and uh and that's why you hear what you hear we had to make do with those you know, technically challenged recordings that were because of the tape. And we sued 3M and we got nothing. They go, we'll give you new tape. <laughs> oh yeah, that's helpful. Well, it, you know, there's still some excellent songs on that record, and, and but it seems like the one that sort of stands out now that people sort of look back on as like the sort of classic song from that record is Beautiful World. Right. Um, which you sing and you made the video, right. I, I think. And and the, and the song and the video are very, like the, the sort of tonal shift of the lyrics and the tonal shift of the visuals are very tied together. Like, tell me about sort of the evolution of that song and, you know, video and everything else. Well, I, once I wrote the lyrics and, and you know, saved the punchline, right? You think, wait, Devo's gone soft. What is this beautiful world? It's soporific music, and he's singing about that it's a beautiful world. How can they do that? And then it's like, yeah, for you, for you, but not for me. As soon as I wrote those lyrics, what I had in mind was a archival montage that would start with silly 50s and 60s kitsch and cycle pop culture from America into the darkness of America with, with uh, the, the uh, bigotry, the racial tension, and then, of course, going straight for the atomic bomb. Right. And because the dark side of human nature wins. And oddly enough, my, my thought process was, it'll be like Bonnie and Clyde, where it starts off kind of fun bank robbing and then it ends up horribly tragic right the tone of that movie went from banjo happy to you know murder right yeah and and so that was the idea that that that's what we do for the video <laughs> and i couldn't wait to do it so it was a very strong single-minded concept where the song and the video were one thing did you write the lyrics before the music or were they sort of together? They were together. Mark started playing that music and I actually thought it was funny. I thought he was just fucking around trying to be like a lounge musician. And I started singing like a lounge musician, you know, like crooning. And then we, we, we just played off of each other. And when huh. I go for you, for you, for you, but not for me, then we started laughing. Wow. So Dan's opinion. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I went back and rewatched 
the video of that, which I'd remembered uh, at the time. And also when I would see you in concert, like I, the first time I saw you was on the new traditionalist tour, actually it was at the Aragon ballroom. It was the first indoor concert I ever went to. And I remember that I a bunch of the videos beforehand. That's right. And, and then, uh, and then did the concert. Um, but anyway, I rewatched the, the beautiful world video and it, it still hits hard, you know, and partly because of like what's going on now. And, and it's like, I, I keep wishing that your sort of theory of devolution would be proven wrong Me too. Um, just for, just for the sake of humankind, Me but, too. you know, just, just seeing all of the, you know, just like devolve into violence and racism and war and this and that I'm like, well, that was from, you know, what, 81. So we're like 81. 40, 41 years on and it's hits. And we're worse off than we were. We're worse off than we were. It's American no. fascism. I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic. It's American fascism. You're going to watch this country turn fascist. And these rogue Republicans with Trump are going to do it. And the Supreme Court is behind it all. And those guys are like the handmaid's tale. They're like the American Taliban. And what they're doing to the American public with these rulings and the latest one stripping Roe v. Wade is diabolical. It's 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 like the worst horror movie you can imagine. And you will not believe the consequences coming our way. They have they have created tenfold the pain and suffering that we all experience because we're mortals. As human beings, they have ratcheted it up exponentially and it's about to hit home. Can art respond to this, you know, or no. is it just sort of too far beyond? Too far beyond. Because, I mean, I mean, you lived through Kent State and you knew people who were killed in Kent State. And that was sort of, you know, I thought the, that'd be the worst thing in my life. And I'm wrong. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and obviously you've been doing this for a while. But like, what can artists do right now? You know, there is not much they can do. There's not much they can do because where do you channel that rage? Even creatively, does it matter? You're still part of the entertainment industry. Meanwhile, real people die by the thousands and hundreds of thousands and lives are ruined and the environment's ruined and the food supplies ruined and women's rights are ruined and there'll be the gnashing of teeth. And so, okay, they played your song on the radio. And maybe you're rich. What are you going to do? That's it for episode 35 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Gerald Casale of Devo for opening up about his experiences with this awesome band. I suggest you give those first five Devo albums a spin and then maybe skip ahead to 2010 Something for Everybody. Then please return here next week for part two of our conversation. Gerald Casale covers a lot of ground and is not shy about saying what's what. Thanks, as always, to web designer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme, which, I must admit, had some Devo influence when I made it up. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who's the producer you want. I've got a gut feeling about that. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for part two of Carol Pop with Gerald Casale. Thanks. Thanks.